From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. This season of Innovators on Tap is sponsored by Husco International, a fast-growing, community-oriented company specializing in high-performance hydraulic and electromechanical components. With over 70 years of experience designing and manufacturing these components, Husco takes pride in collaborating with customers to develop innovative solutions. Husco has U.S. locations in Wisconsin and Iowa and global locations in England, Germany, China, and India. A privately owned company that offers more than just a job, a career at Husco is an entrepreneurial experience full of incredible opportunities for growth, creativity, and innovation. Go to husco.com to begin your next adventure and put the lessons you've learned from the podcast to work. Honesty kills bullshit. You're an owner. Act like one. Enable. Don't direct. No. This isn't unsolicited advice for me, although it probably could be. These are actually three of the nine core cultural principles for public.com, an investing app that is making the stock market social. Today's guest, Life Abraham, is the author of these principles and the co-founder and CEO of public.com. Life developed these principles through a successful career as a creative director before founding his first two companies, Anco and pay with a tweet. He believes that for any company to be successful, the values have to be more than simple sayings, but the principles that guide your behavior and approach to work each and every day. As life says, autonomy without principles creates anarchy. We also discuss why life thinks real innovation doesn't rely on consultants, the importance of building an inclusive community around a product and why he looks for the right values over the right skills when hiring new people. To put it in his words, it's easier to teach skills than it is to teach values. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Life, welcome and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Thanks for having me. So, you know, before this interview, we actually fielded a number of questions from Twitter followers And one of the things that most people wanted me to ask you was, is how do you feel about consultants? (laughs) So for a decently large part of my career, I was in the ad agency world. And so basically being a consultant to a way, right? Doing work for hire and uh, how our now VP marketing, Katie always called it because she also comes from that background, um, is decks for checks. Uh, which I kind of love. <laughs> I would consider myself been fairly successful in it and blah. And like I had, I think, a, a pretty decent career in that. Uh, but I really got to this point where I felt like, excuse my French, but I felt like I was kind of pissing my time away because in the end of the day, it's just decks for checks. And so, you know, building anything, it's very hard to, you know, develop your professional skills really if you're always just you know, scratching the surface. And I think one of the biggest things that I very quickly realized when I 
kind of moved from that really more into being like an operational founder was how fucking naive I was. Because I think if you're a consultant, you're basically being trained to sell people that you know something better than them to a certain extent. And you just, if you actually have to do it and, ex and execute on it, and you are the one who actually has to like go the extra mile and like actually do it and then make sure that it works and that it's successful and see it through, you'll very quickly realize that a lot of these things that you've pitched to clients in the past are, you know, pretty much bullshit. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, when I was running Cree, we kind of had a bias against using consultants, you know, as we were building the company kind of felt like if we were going to lead and innovate the market, we had to figure it out or we weren't going to be the right ones to keep driving the company. And so I'm curious, you know, you did it for a long time. I know you have a view that as a career move, that there are probably better things you can go do, but now that you're an operator, do you use a lot of consultants or do you feel like you need to develop the expertise in-house? Very heavily in-house. And, you know, and obviously like when you, when, when you build something from scratch, you're going to have the luxury to just hire someone to think for you. You know, um, you should do the thinking yourself. Um, that's kind of your job. <laughs> so, um, and so, yeah, no, of course not. Yeah. I feel like if you're not part of the process of building it, you miss some really cool ideas and opportunities that kind of pop up along the way. Like while you're building it, you learn things and discover things. And if you rely on someone else, I think some of the best ideas we came up with, we would have never seen if the expertise was coming from outside the company. Yeah. And I think if you're like a large incumbent old company that just is completely in the innovative dilemma and you just basically, you know, have your army of you know, nine to five of us that, you know, cash their checks. I think that getting that outside inspiration can help for sure. Cause you would just be set in your ways and your processes. And, you know, and the first kind of thing that people will think of like, but that's not how it's done. You know, you cannot do this here. And, and so that stuff can obviously help if you're in, if you're in that kind of stage, but I think the real innovation happens if you go deep. If you get to really innovate something, you know, being, you know, not actually going deep, then I would say it's just luck. I know that public.com is not the first company you founded. I think you had two others before this pay with a tweet and Anco, both which were acquired. And I'm curious, you know, when you start a company and have success, I would think it might be kind of hard to give away your thing, right? It's your baby. You built it, you developed it, and now you sell it and let someone else run it. Was it hard for you to actually sell them and let someone else run them? With Pay With The Tweet, it was really the sense of that it was an accidental success. And so actually my buddy and I, we wrote a book about digital marketing in 2009, 10, something like that, right? And we were like nobodies really at the time. We were like a creative team in ad agencies and, you know, we were always on digital side and, you know, we were kind of at least within specific people, maybe known for some of the type of work that we were doing because um, it was more and more unusual at that time. But, um, and so that's why we wrote that book, you know, and the book was called, Oh my God, what happened? What should I do? Um, and, and for us, there was a sense of that we're not going to write this book in order to, you know, sell a bunch of copies of this book. No one's going to give us a book deal. So what does success look like for us? And success for us was what if just everyone out there tweets about it? And that what sparked the idea of like, so why don't we just give it away for free, but not to get it, you have to tweet about it. And that started basically just to solve kind of like for our own issue, the idea of paper to tweet, which then 
we just turned into a product for other people to use. Very hacked together, right? And until we sold it, it was this really hacked together kind of small PHP script, you know? Like there was no real deep tech in there at all and whatnot. But it kind of blew up organically because obviously it also had like a viral effect to it. Then the more people used that button, the more people had exposure to the button. So the more people were inspired to use the button. And so it just had this like viral effect built in, not just for the people using it for their own products, but also to promote the product itself. It was kind of this like accidental success, which then led to it just being a bootstrap thing. It just kept going. Every major record label used it suddenly to give like songs away, right? Like events like the Internet Week used it to give like discounts on their tickets. Then Mitt Romney used it when he ran for president. But um, um, but it really kind of reached this point where it was, okay, am I going to quit my job to run this? I don't know. You know, this is not the thing I would now quit my job to run. And then if I, so if I don't quit my job to run it, then it's just going to slowly die because it's not going to get the support it needs. And so can I give it to someone else to take care of it? And that kind of inspired this thing and, you know, and so that was more of like an accidental kind of thing. And so in that case, it was like, yeah, it was completely fine to give it away because it was kind of things just happened. And so then um, with Antco um, was really, so when I joined Prehype, um, this company built in New York, um, Henry, the founder of that, um, and I, we basically had this like handshake deal of like, cool, I'm going to join Prehype. I'm going to do some of like, you know, the venture development stuff, more consultants work and so on. Um, but the goal is for me to start a company out of this. And, um, and it was just like, no idea what it's going to be, but that's going to be the goal. And so, and, um, and then I think with that, it was really, um, a sense of, um, we recognized the best way to grow it was through distribution partnerships. And then with Fiverr, it was really the sense of that we recognized that, like, okay, the way it's growing and how fast it's growing, like how far we really want to, like, are we really going to get with this on our own? based off the growth model that this, you know, happened to have in the end. And, you know, and we recognized that these, these distribution partnerships was really the way to really grow it. And if you really want to make a proper shot at this, then attaching it to something like, you know, like Fiverr, which is massive, you know, would uh, just accelerate it drastically. And from an experience as an, as an, as an entrepreneur, it was a sense of like, okay, we're going to keep shopping away at this. It's going to be a decent business. We might going to have like our 20 employees and it's going to be a fine thing, but it's not going to be the big impact that we really wanted to have from our personal ambitions of where it should go. And you saw the opportunity that if you do it with a bigger player like Fiverr, that you could actually get there and experience it. And so that was our personal kind of drive behind, behind an acquisition like that. And, um, and honestly, from that perspective, it worked out like crazy, right? I mean, I think we quadrupled in size under Fiverr and whatnot. And you suddenly, you know, deal with scaling issues that you never had and whatnot, and da, 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 da. And it's always like, like, you don't know what you don't know until you actually have to do it. And, um, you know, you might hear about it and read about some startup block or whatever, but until you actually, actually experience it yourself, you don't really know what you're doing, right? Like you cannot read your way to experience. It's not possible. You know, I think it was, you know, one of the most valuable experiences that I had in my professional career was, you know, to, to kind of join a bigger ship, learn from, you know, the experiences there, and then also to just push it into a way larger scale than it was. And we were running it our own, which then just created these experiences that I would have gotten otherwise, at least not that quickly. So in that second experience, what did you like better? Did you like the starting and building it or was, did you enjoy scaling it more? Is there one of those things that, you know, you enjoy personally more, you liked more, you got more out of? 
I'm very comfortable in the early stage because I've done it a bunch of times and I'm very comfortable in building something from scratch, getting it out there. And I think if I would say what my superpower is, I think my personal superpower is to hack attention. With that, I feel very confident in, in, in you know, getting something to a certain scale. But then in terms of personal growth, it's like, it's not like, don't just focus on what you think you're good at, but, you know, where can you get to and how can you, you know, make sure that you have those experiences moving forward. An old buddy of mine and I who worked together for a long time. We were like the creative team in the agencies. We did pay the, we did pay the tweet together and whatnot. And while we were still in the mindset of being an employee somewhere, we always were talking about every move that you need to make in your career, you have to think about it as a semester. And so with that next semester you're taking, what are you, what is that semester you're taking? Like, what are you actually learning here and whatnot, right? And make sure that your skills that you've accumulated are applied the right way, that you get paid the real money and you make your moves and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you should, you should always optimize for experience, not pay. And that's how I personally always, you know, made my moves to optimize for experience, not pay, because otherwise you will very quickly end up in just a position where you just get pain money. So you get money for the pain you have to endure on a day-to-day -day basis and you know likely the the company or the setup or whatever that will pay you the most will be you know likely also a job that will be the most painful and so instead of optimizing for that rather optimize for experience and then by optimizing for experience you're also on the flip side um, optimizing for sustainability for you as a professional in your career because you will constantly um, develop yourself further and therefore you will never fall into this mode where one day you recognize you're in this big ass job, you're banking a mill a year or whatnot, but you're also recognizing that you're kind of becoming obsolete or like your just relevance is falling apart. And, you know, there are younger people who know things much better that you are not catching up with anymore and bam, bam, bam. And so that's why I would always optimize for experience over pay. That's great insight. So I know that now you're the founder and you're the co-CEO of public.com, which is, I'll call it a new investing app. That's probably not doing it good enough justice. So why don't you tell us more about what does public.com do and what makes kind of your guys approach unique and innovative in the market? So public is the investing social network. And so we've built a social network around the stock market and we're doing it in a kind of like a full stack way, which means we're actually a fully licensed broker dealer. You can buy and sell, you know, fractional stocks in real time on the app and everything. Um, but we view ourselves as a social network first. And so when we look at why people have not actively invested in the stock market, we really think there are two major reasons to it. Number one, it's a lack of financial literacy. And so just understanding what the stock market is, understanding how it works, right? What is the stock price, blah, 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 blah. But then on the other hand, it's, um, that the culture that has been built around the stock market and stock trading has not really been an inviting culture. And so if you think about stock trading and stock traders, right, you're, you kind of already have a certain picture in your head. And so it's very white male dominated. It's Wolf of Wall Street memes. It's hashtag YOLO calls and whatnot. And it's kind of close to gambling culture more than it's truly investing culture. And so in that regard, the stock market is scary because the culture is scary. And so what we've really done is that we've built this social network around the stock market, which then makes it possible for you to follow people on the app. You can see what they're investing in. Everyone has a public portfolio, no pun intended, um, where you can see what kind of you know positions they have, what kind of companies they invest in. When you buy or sell something, you can add a little caption to it to kind of share your investing thesis. 
you know, other people can also just share general insights on investing strategies or, you know, insights to certain companies or sectors or, you know, trends they're interested in and so on. Also, just the thing that, we, that, that we've done very early on is to focus on really building a culture and the community that's just way more inclusive. And so inclusive in terms of having more different voices um, and inclusive in terms of being way, way more welcoming of new investors, of people who had never done it before. And so it's, we see social as a way to scale education. So, look, I love the idea of trying to bring down barriers to, you know, the kind of the intimidation that comes with the financial markets. I obviously grew up in that environment uh, and obviously have a, as a public company CEO, spent a lot of time on the other side of that dealing with it. And so I can see how you can get access and, and get people more comfortable with it. But, you know, one of the things I get concerned about is that and you guys talk about this a little bit on your website, you're trying to create this healthier ecosystem and I think you say we promote strategic thinking over speculative trading. Yet my experience with social networks is that they don't often lead to very strategic behavior. I, and, and maybe I'm misunderstanding how the app works, but my concern is, is that, you know, I love the idea of getting people involved, yet it feels like are we almost creating more access to bad information through this approach what do you think like that question comes if you haven't actually experienced a community and it comes because you because you're coming from the experience that you had around social which is you know often more toxic community um etc etc and so um i think it's you know and that's just it's it's pattern recognition that's what everyone does we will reply what we've learned to the things that we will you know that we see in front of our eyes very logical um but I'm incredibly proud by the, the, the culture that we have built within the community. And that not just goes into the sense of inclusion and diversity of a community, but it also goes just into the healthy behavior you're seeing. And I think there are a couple aspects to it. So if you're in public, you have to have a fully approved brokerage account in order to participate in the community, which means we kind of make this like joke sometimes of like we're basically that's not really a joke because it's a fact but but it's basically we're likely the most verified social network in the history of social networks because everyone who is in the who's 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 part of the network went through full identity verification and so that just lifts the quality of the community from the get-go because you don't have the you know anonymous um you know trolly behavior that you will see in other social networks out there and I think that's number one. And then the second piece is, you know, being very mindful of who you acquire and then how you build the culture around it. And it sounds fluffy because in a way it is, it's way more, you know, human than just, you know, building social features. But I think, but, but it is something that I think we've done a lot of work on and I think it shows, right? And so we're getting a lot of tweets around of like, you know, really like the vibe in here and whatnot, you know, which is just from the supportive type of nature that, you know, the culture has in the community right now. And, um, and I would honestly say, I think that, I think that is very, I think that is very special. Oh, no, I love it because it makes me wonder, you know, I might want to be a public company CEO again if I actually could talk to people who were real people. And they would admit who they were and honestly discuss their questions. I, I loved talking to real investors. What made me crazy was dealing with the person behind the screen who was just using social as a way to take shots. And it was frustrating. And I, I give you that as the CEO side of it and as an investor, but I totally get it. It's actually, you make a great point. And uh, 
There's a second question I want to ask you, which kind of gets at more just the role of individual investors. And so Warren Buffett, who's someone I've admired a long time, I think he said at the uh, at their annual meeting this year, he said, most people are not in a position to pick single stocks and they'd be better off buying you know, a cross-section of America like index funds and forgetting about it. And as someone who saw how the market worked, prior to this conversation, I have agreed with him. But I'm curious, what do you think about his advice and do you think he's getting something wrong there? No, and I think there are, I'm, you know, I cannot give financial advice for many reasons, and you should not listen to me in that sense anyway. But hey, there are a lot of healthy, you know, ways to invest, and I think, you know, likely investing in, in you know, in a, in a diversified portfolio is, you know, obviously a less risky way in most cases. And you know, ETFs just are creating a diversification from scratch, so therefore, you know, um, you know, not investment advice, but it's likely a good thing. Though I think it's it is not just about performance. More than half of this country is not invested in the stock market, not even through their 401k or something, right? And that is, and I would say that is very bad. And it's not just very bad in terms of wealth creation, it's very bad because of building financial literacy. And one big thing I always said is like, you know, I sucked at school, um, I was really bad. I learned by doing, that's just how I operate. Um, and so for me, just reading a bunch of books or long articles and so on, is not gonna, it's not what's gonna make me, you know, really smarter. And so like, I just have to do something and part of that might also be failing and, you know, but that's how I learn and being able to, to participate in the market will help you likely build financial literacy because you will, you know, understand it by doing it. And especially fractional investing makes it possible to do that in any company with any amount of money. If you want to put in 20 bucks to learn about the stock market, great. Yeah. Um, not financial advice, do your own thing, but great. Um, and so, and so, um, um, the stock market is a major piece of, you know, modern kind of Western society in a way. Right. And if you're an adult citizen in this society, I think you benefit greatly from understanding how the stock market works. It helps you understand incentives in political decisions and arguments in how companies operate. And I think there are a lot of cross learnings of when you learn about investing that you will apply to other things into your, when you get a mortgage into when you think about, you know, personal loans and sort of think about what happens when you sign a cell phone contract, whatever it might be. Right. But I think there's a lot of cross, you know, pollination here that happens when you learn about investing um, and learning about the stock market in general. And so getting more people um, educated around the stock market um, and doing it in a way where everyone can learn the way that they learn best by following people that break it down in the way that they understand, by having conversations with other people in the back and forth, by you know learning by doing themselves, even if they you know might stumble over failure on some stock or whatever. But I think giving people the opportunity to learn whatever way is best for them to learn, to learn about the stock market in general, is always I would say is definitely a net positive. And it's not just about wealth creation, it's about gaining financial literacy, which then maybe in the long term leads to wealth creation. That's a great perspective. So I was curious as reading about public, you guys have these nine core principles. It starts with everything matters, honesty kills bullshit. I think it ends with find a way. And I have to tell you, I can totally relate because they're actually pretty similar to some of the principles we had when we were running Cree. And so I was just really enjoying reading them and especially the very crisp, like in your face way to say, this is what we believe. So I'm curious though, 
How did they come about? Is this something you carried over from previous businesses? How did these nine come to be the principles? Um, part, part. So yes, part were from even, you know, we had similar principles in Enco, for example, right, et cetera, et cetera. We also have sessions with our management team around these and really break it down. I'm a big believer in principles in that way. And I believe that these are tools that you use in your day-to-day. And, you know, I think it's easy to be cynical about it and think of them as posters in a hall in your office. Um, and if that's how it executes, it's obviously bad. But for us, these are tools that we use in the day-to-day. Um, to give you an example, I think the one that's used the most is Honestly Kills Bullshit. Um, it's also one of my favorites. Uh, it moved from being the second principle to the first one now in the new iteration. But, um, but seriously, and I think um, that principle alone, we use it all the time. And we say it out loud. And on every Tuesday meeting, we actually repeat the principles and we run through one of the principles and explain it again. And we just beat the drum on it every Tuesday again and again and again. And as more people join, they see them again and again and again. And what's good is because it sparks conversation. It also maybe leads to changes on principles as feedback comes in. We might recognize that, ah, you know, everything matters, for example, often got mis, you know, got kind of misinterpreted as perfection, which is not really what it's about. You know, and and so that one, for example, was now killed and replaced with something else. Um, but then other principles just really stick and they're being used day to day. If you build a company quickly, first off, you need clear principles, which then inform the processes that you're creating, because building a company is making millions of decisions. And you have to and to create any sort of autonomy. You have to create principles so that people can make autonomously decisions in the future around these principles, because Autonomy without principles creates anarchy. And so you need these you need principles and clear processes so you have a clear structure that people oper- operate within. If you're enjoying this episode and want to learn more about how you can discover the mindset to pursue the impossible, please check out my new book, The Innovator's Spirit, where I explain the beliefs that lead to the behaviors that make innovation possible. It is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Now, let's get back to the show. I want to get on to the second part of the interview because I really want to get your perspective on how you personally think about certain things. I want to get into your mindset, you know, and and when it comes to innovation, entrepreneurship, kind of what's your view. So let me start with, do you think your personal success has come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure? I think it's not being afraid of failure. I don't buy this concept of celebrating failure. I think that's a little BS. In this is very okay, there's this very great ice tea video called Fuck It. I don't know if you've seen that. If not, you should Google it. Where he's basically talking about like the top of the mountain, and then there's people who just kind of stop before they go over the edge, and then there are other people who just stand on the edge and just say, eh, fuck it. And then they go over and he's basically and like his argument is that like all the big rewards, all the huge success, all of that is on the other side of that edge. And if you never step over it, you will just never get it. I have to say, I have not had anyone suggest this whole season that an ice tea video holds the key to embracing this concept, but I actually love it because I'm one of the things I like to teach is how to become unafraid of failure. And I think you've captured it in a way that's honestly more culturally relevant probably to a lot of people. 
So my next question, I think I already can know where you're going to go with this, but uh, it's really about when you're trying to drive innovation or build a business, what's more important, uh, the brutal truth or creating an environment for psychological safety? I don't know how you would define psychological safety right now, but, uh, but obviously if you frame it like that, I would always say the brutal truth is better, right? So of course, that's, that's where honesty because bullshit comes from, right? If you don't, like if you don't have the transparency, if you don't have the brutal truth, you know, then um, you know you will always have ambiguity. You will always have, you know, it basically creates gossip, you know, and I think that's toxic to any culture and environment. So on the other side of that, so how do you get people to embrace that? Because that's very different from most organizations. You know, most companies are not about, hey, just say exactly what you're thinking. Let's put it out there, right? And so there's a lot of talk about you have to create this environment of psychological safety. So your approach, how do you make that work? How do you get people comfortable with it? Or do you hire them because they're already comfortable with it? No, I think number one is whenever someone actually does it, immediately show that you appreciate it so that everyone else around them sees that if you like if you are just brutally honest that it is something that is being celebrated and rewarded and something that is you know said out loud then then you know whatever. one of the other pieces we have is this, is this concept around uh, feedback comes from a place of care i think it's very important to to kind of teach so to say everyone that the clear dif- the, the, the official definition of feedback is suggestions for improvement. Number one is suggestions. It's not a directive of do this or fuck off. It's suggestions and it's for improvement. And so we're all working on the same thing to try to make something better. And a lot of the times people just misunderstand feedback for criticism. And criticism is just this sucks. But that's not feedback. Telling this sucks is not feedback, right? Feedback is... Um, I believe, you know, um, this and this and this might be good because of X, Y, Z, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, and therefore teaching the, the different, making sure that everyone understands the differences between criticism and feedback and then understanding that feedback comes from a place of care. So when you're confronted with a problem, is your approach more likely to be you're going to try to think outside the box, you're going to try to build a better box, or you're just going to set the box on fire and do something completely different? What's your default mode? When there's a problem, you get the people who might have you know, good experiences around it um, onto the same page, and you will try to figure it out. And then often we have... Um, one thing we have one concept in the organization, which is concept of DRI, directly responsible individuals, and so that basically everything in the organization should have a DRI. Um, and that might be on a project, it might be generally in the, within the organization, you know. Um, but anything should have a DRI, which also means there's this one single person that will have the last say on something, and it's also just to move things quickly and to not fall into a mode of committee decisions because committee leads to compromise, and compromise leads to shitty products. When you're evaluating talent that you might look at hiring for your company, what is the most important quality or trait about them that you're like, I need to see this to be confident. I think they're going to be successful when they join our team. Number one, are they good, humble people? I think it's, you know, depends on obviously sometimes you just hire people that have done it before, but I think generally it's, it's easier to teach, to teach skills than it is, than it is to teach values. 
And so if you do, if you bring people into the organization that have different values than you know the rest of the organization, I think it's just gonna it's it's gonna create tension. It's gonna be be, be hard to make it work. Um, so I think that's number one. Like you know, are you on the same page on things? You know, what are the values? Are there, for lack of better example, good humble people? I think humbleness is often just a good a general good trait and good good sign. And I think um, the second thing is, and I think that's a very hard one to really. Um, to really manage and it's a hard one because it's it's just very hard to to evaluate people through a quick interview process in all times is to to find the undiscovered talent that has the skills and the ambition and therefore will just crush it versus the people that come with all the right signals and all the right badges that they've collected throughout their career, right? The great college, the great big tech company, you know, and bam, bam. And so they've collected all the right kind of badges, right? All the little awards, but potentially don't have actually the, the ambition and the hunger, um, you know, to, to kind of, you know, do that. But I think most people are fishing and fighting for the same kind of badge talent. Um, and because it seems like a safer bet, you know, it's like there's a saying of like no one ever got fired for hi uh, for hiring IBM, and I think it's the same with like no one got fired if you hire the Stanford person from Google. You know, like you can always point back to like oh, but they had a great resume, right? The calls were great that we had. Um, but I think uh, uh, you wanna you wanna find that undiscovered talent, and I have not the answer perfectly for you on how to achieve that always. But I think that's the, that's that's the best. And also with that, I think generally for the industry, you're growing the talent base. Right? which then also makes it easier to create more diverse talent as well, right? Because you're growing the talent base. You're not just shifting people around from one company to the other. This has been an incredible conversation. I am so interested in your approach to principles and driving your company. Um, you've actually taken it further in some ways than we were able to take it. And I worked on it for 25 years. I'm super impressed and uh, some great ideas that I hope people are really listening because your principles work together. And as you describe this idea that, you know, you've got to have the realize the two go together if you're going to give people this brutal feedback. And I think you've captured it, but you've done it in a way of being intentional that I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone go that far. And I just, I would just say, I'm so thankful for you sharing those stories because don't get me wrong, what you're doing at public.com is really cool, but how you're doing it is just super interesting and it's scalable anywhere someone wants to. So thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Cool, Chuck. Thanks so much. Really. Thanks to Life for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his many unique insights about business, including his thoughts on the need for personal accountability and decision-making. As he said, everything in the organization should have a directly responsible individual. Committees lead to compromise, and compromise leads to shitty products. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far, including our sponsor, Husco International. While we are proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you will tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontop.com, including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up 
for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.